to keep sweet when life is bitter. Because God's still working his purposes out, you see, in Joseph. God knows what he's about. But there's a second thing. Trusting God to turn it all around, keep sweet when life is bitter, that's what keeps you going. That's what it means to live with hope. But then things turn around for Joseph, and uh, we need to just have another little read. Chapter 41, verse 50. Before the years of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph by Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On. Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh and said, It is because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. And the second son he named Ephraim and said, It is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. Agar, speaking in the book of Proverbs, was right. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you, or too little and may steal. Well, Joseph suddenly becomes like a major lottery winner, doesn't he? There's your Bugatti Veyron. There's your little Pied de Terre, you know, little mansion in Mayfair, perhaps. When you've won 100 million, you've got a few bob to spare, haven't you? I can assure you you have. When you're as rich as uh, Bill Gates, you've got more money coming in every day than you know how to give away. Joseph suddenly becomes the big guy <laughs> in Egypt with all its riches. He's a lottery winner. So how do you uh, do that? Well, be grateful when life is good. His fortunes turn all around, and what does he do? Well, he's encouraged to abound. We're not meant to stay in bitterness and battle all the time, and when God comes and blesses us, we're, we're to be grateful. There's only one way, however, of making sure we stay grateful, and that is that in our change circumstances, wherever we are, two children need to be born, Manasseh and Ephraim. When life turns around for Joseph, he has two sons, and he gives us the meaning of their names. It's because God has made me forget all my troubles, and it's because God has made me fruitful. Do you see the significance? When the good times come, if you're having a good time, then enjoy it. There are some Christians who, who kind of feel you should always be sourpuss and you should always be under the circumstances and always down. You know, and never enjoy anything. You know, like in the, the far north of Scotland, you know, the kind of, with a very Sabbatarian. There's a story of a, a Presbyterian minister and he couldn't get round to his church the far side of the lock, but the lock had frozen in these arctic conditions almost, and he had a bright idea because the roads were impassable. So he got out his skates, and he skated across the lock. And he, there weren't many there, but he performed divine worship. And after the service, a few sour-pushed-looking 
elders said, uh, Brother, we'd like to speak to you in the presbytery. So when he went and they said, Brother, it's come to our notice that you've skated across the lock this morning to perform divine worship. He said, aye, that's true, but the roads were impassable. It was the only way I could get here. They said, but you skated on the Sabbath. <laughs> he said, I know, but it was the only way I could get here. He said, well, we understand that, but what we want to know is, did you enjoy it? <laughs> and there's some versions of Christianity like that, aren't there? You know? I remember a lady leaving my church in East London. She said, I'm leaving it because everybody's too happy. I'm thinking, are they? That's great. I mean, you'd rather leave that rather than all those miserable, you know, so-and-sos in that church, wouldn't you? Because life isn't unremitting doom and gloom. You know, we're not all with a character from Dad's Army all the time. We're all doomed, Captain Mandarin. So when life's good, you know, some of us are doing well in our careers. Our kids are doing well. We've got young children. For goodness sake, we're kids, by the way. You can either endure them or enjoy them. It takes the same amount of effort. So just enjoy them. If you notice, some parents just seem to want to scream and shout and holler at their kids and take them to the supermarket and then shout at them and even smack them. Give the kids a break. I'd rather smack the parents. You know, just give the kids some space. Enjoy them. And if you're doing well, don't be looking around thinking, oh, I must be doing something wrong because the sky's going to fall in. Or, you know, well, it's all right today, but tomorrow it's going to be doom and gloom. Paul the Apostle said, I've learned to be abased and I've learned to abound. And some of us by temperament are more able to be abased and doom and gloom than to abound. The Apostle said, I've found the secret of contentment. I know how to be abased and how to be abound. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Philippians 4, 11 through 13. That's the deal. So when life's good, pray God will birth in you forgetfulness. What the apostle again says in Philippians, forgetting what lies behind. That's an act of the will, isn't it? Joseph said, God's helped me to forget my father's house. He never actually ever forgot it but he's consciously remembering it no more. He's, he's drawing a line under the pain and rejection and betrayal and wickedness of his potentially fratricidal brothers. If you've got stuff in the past that you need to draw a line under, then in the name of God, do it with his help. That's why God's brought you here this weekend. So that all the baggage of the past doesn't have to keep pass coming into, the, into your present. Listen, if you let the past dominate your present, you'll mortgage your future. Can I run that by yet again? If you let your past dominate your present, you'll mortgage your future. And Joseph's not going to do that. He's 30, he's been through the mill, but he's going to forget it and move on. And he says, and in moving on, God has made me fruitful. And God wants to do that in you. He wants to give you hope. He wants to tell you that the best days are ahead. And if you're in some really good days at the moment and everything's going really well, well, rejoice. The Bible says we're to rejoice with those who rejoice and we're to weep with those who weep. Both are Christian experiences. And in the church, we've got to do that. And somebody's doing well, then we don't say... Oh. Somebody said to 
this guy who's just bought this Bugatti Veyron, so be careful where you park it, because around here, somebody will just put a scratch mark along it. That's a generalization. They wouldn't do that in America. The guy says he pulled up in this big swanky car at some traffic lights, and there was a, a tramps, three person. And the guy says to him, is this your car? He says, yep. He says, you know, someday I'm going to have a car like that. He's on the streets, but he's living in hope. In Liverpool, they say, we'll have the wheels off that, mate, if you park it. <laughs> and Liverpool became the culture capital. Apparently, uh, if you parked your car, you didn't come back and find her on four bricks and the wheels missing. You find her on four copies of War and Peace and the wheels missing. That's the <laughs> city of culture. God wants to birth in us these things. So, be grateful when life's good. But then, uh, can anybody work this out for me? The Navier-Stokes equations of fluid dynamics in three-dimensional. Uh, any, uh, seriously, any of you into this? I'm glad about that, because I haven't got a clue what it means either. It's a very complex equation, isn't it? I imagine. I'm still trying to get my head around the Poisson predictability method I mentioned about one of our students who is into. Hmm. You ready to read a bit more then as we come to it? What's the equation about? Well, chapter 42, verses 6 through 9. Now, Joseph was the governor of the land and the one who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him. Oh, ding, 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 ding. Do you remember what he said? <laughs> they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. And as soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where'd you come from, he asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they didn't recognize him. Then he remembered his dreams about them and said to them, you are spies. You've come to see where our land is unprotected. No, no, my Lord, they answered. Your, your servants have come to buy food. We're all the sons of one man. Your servants are honest men, not spies. Then just a quick flip over to chapter 44. We'll come back on this. Your servant, this is Judah speaking, your servant, my father said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One of them went away from me. And I said, he's surely been torn to pieces. And I've not seen him since. If you take this one from me, this is young Benjamin from me too, harm comes to him. You'll bring my gray head down to the grave in misery. Hmm. Here's our third thought. Like the equation, be wise when life is complex. And there is, isn't it? For Joseph. If you read that narrative through at your leisure, when the guys turned up, Joseph didn't say, Hi, guys, it's me. Get up. It's Joseph. <laughs> Are you pleased to see me? Why did he do that? Instead, he has this game, it seems, going on of cat and mouse, and he lets them go back, and he incarcerates one of the brothers, and then they come back again, and, and uh, young Benjamin, his full-blood brother, comes, the young kid. And then he, he stitches Benjamin up, so Benjamin's got, you know, the silver cup and everything else. And they all come back, and, and he's playing a game with them. And you think, Joseph, why don't you just get on with it? In fact, Joseph, when you got into royal office, why don't you just get the cavalry together and charge over to Canaan and see your old man and to the brothers and say, 
hey, get over it. Haven't I done well? He doesn't do any of that. He has a broken family. He has a massively dysfunctional family. He has a family who should have gone to prison for what they did. In our day, they definitely would be banged up. People trafficking. Call it what you like. But he doesn't. He plays a cat and mouse game with them. Why? I've often thought of that. Joseph, why don't you just get on with it? You know, life's too short, you know. Because fixing a broken family takes time. Now, do you remember the days when people used to do washing up? <laughs> we have an automatic dishwasher, me. I actually prefer to wash up. We have, yeah, we've got a dishwasher. We had, we had 13 for lunch last week, you know. And I'm going to be left with all that stuff in a dishwasher. Nah, come and stand around the sink. Let's have a good natter, and then we wash up. But there's some stuff you can put in a dishwasher, but... You know when you've had a kind of one of those Pyrex dishes and everything's burned on it, you know? You stick it in the dishwasher and whatever it says about the gold standard of the... You know, you're thinking, yeah, flip it and do it again. What do you do with those things when the... You know, those old things that are really baked on hard. What, what, did, we, what did we used to do with them? Yes, so you give it a good soaking. If that's what you do, you leave it and you let it soak because you know it's going to take time for the detergents to get in and get all the stuff off. Now, I tell you, Joseph's family, metaphorically, was a really deeply burned Pyrex dish. And it's no good him just getting a quick sort of cloth and going, well, it's okay now, isn't it? Because it's still all got the stuff burned into it. And what's happening at one level is Joseph letting this thing have a good soaking. If you've got a pain in your family, it takes time. You've got to give some things time to soak. Because Joseph needs to know what's going on in their hearts. And that leads us to a second thing. Oh, don't want to go there. Hmm. Think we've lost something. Fixing the broken family takes time. I'll give you something else then. Wait for the famine. Fixing the broken family should be a couple of other points here, so forgive me. It's a little too late. Wait for the famine. He does, doesn't he? He's seven years, good years, then there's two years when the famine kicks in, and eventually Jacob says, no good looking at each other, get down there to Egypt. I hear there's corn, there's bread in Egypt. So nine years on from when he comes to royal position, eventually the famine begins to take its toll. Again, this is how the Bible works. It's, it's, would you like a piece of jargon on a Sunday morning? This is how you read the Bible intercanonically. Oh, what? The canon of the Bible, the scriptures. So do, do you remember somebody else who, some old guy who had to wait for a famine to come to his son. You heard of the prodigal son? And what happened to the prodigal son was a famine came in the land. And when the famine came, he was already, you know, which is terrible for a Jew, he was around the pigsty. And what to read even that? I mean, incredible. 
He's hit rock bottom. No, he hasn't. But now the famine comes and nobody gives him anything. He hits the bottom. And he starts to make his way home. I've discovered, and it's helped me a great deal, that forgiveness and reconciliation are not synonyms. They're not exactly the same thing. In his heart, Joseph has forgiven. But forgiveness is one thing. Yesterday I mentioned a young woman who'd been sexually abused by a maternal grandfather died she's moved on and forgiven but she has no opportunity to reconcile forgiveness is one thing reconciliation can take longer because it takes two to reconcile have you got a prodigal in the family in your family the son of your dreams that broke your heart your darling daughter who kicked your dreams somewhere over the rainbow. Maybe prodigal parents let you down. To fix a broken family takes time. And sometimes you've got to wait for the famine. And Joseph waits for the famine. He, he waits for his opportune moment. And when he does, he then, when they come, he proceeds with caution. He's careful. He's playing a game of poker face with them. That's really important. Because I say it looks like cat and mouse going on here. But he wants to know, has any change taken place in them? The father at one level doesn't want the kid to come home and say, now I'm home. You know all that stuff I was doing? I don't know whether he was or not. It was the elder brother said. You know all that stuff I was doing, prostitutes and everything else? Well, they're moving in here to the farm with his dad. No, they're not. There's certain things that you cannot allow to happen under your roof. If your prodigal wants to live that way, they do it somewhere else. But when Johnny comes if not marching, creeping home, you want to know if there's a change. Think of a friend of mine, his son, up to his eyeballs in drugs and trying to, you know, he'd be on the main uh, kind of road into Bournemouth late at night, trying to touch cars, stoned out of his head, smashed off his face at 70 miles an hour, I'd be zooming past him trying to touch him because the kid was complete mess, bring him home, absolute hell. Eventually the kid had to go. I've got to tell you, it's wonderful to see the grace of God in that young man today who's been converted. Whenever he comes home, it's a delight. He's not bringing the drug culture back under the family roof again and hell on earth to his parents. There's been change, but it's taken time. And of course, you've always got to pray that when the prodigal gets in touch, the first person he meets is the waiting father and not the elder brother. And by the way, there's an elder brother in every one of us. There is, you know. Pharisaism 
They got what they deserved. We're coming back now. You pray that God will give you and birth in you the, the wonderful spirit of the waiting father. He's the real hero of the story. Be careful of the elder brother. You've got to know that they've hit rock bottom and reconciliation is now possible. And of course he comes marching home and then things happen. And, and the brothers are there and and, and, and has anything happened in their hearts? Come with me. I just want to read this passage because it's, it's one of the most poignant and moving passages in the Bible. It looks like Benjamin's going to be incarcerated and kept by Joseph. And Judah, that's important. Judah. Judah was the guy, you remember back in chapter 37, who wanted to sell his brother. And then in chapter 38, who had, an, who, who had sex with, he thought was a prostitute. And it turned out to be his, his, his daughter-in-law. It's a He's a complete mess. But now, amazingly, years on, Judah, Reuben's out the ring because he's messed up. Judah, who's also messed up, is now assuming prominence in the family line. And that's going to be really important because it's going to be ultimately from the tribe of Judah that Jesus comes. That's the big story. You still there? So just hold that in your mind. But at the moment, this is just the individual. And the question is, has this guy in any way changed from his selfishness, his male chauvinism, from his, his desire just to look after number one? But he's had perhaps many hot Eastern ni nights when he's tossed and turned and wondered what happened to his kid brother. And he doesn't know who this guy is before him. And now he's got another kid brother. And the question is, what's going to happen to this kid brother? Is he going to let him be sold into slavery? Is he going to let him die? But there's something happened in this fallen man. It's called grace. Then Judah, verse 18, chapter 44, went up to Joseph and said, not knowing he was Joseph, please, my Lord, let your servant speak a word to my Lord. Don't be angry with your servant, though you're equal to Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servants, do you have a father or a brother? And we answered, we have an aged father and there's a young son born to him in his old age. His brother is dead. Uh -huh. And he's the only one of his mother's sons left and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down so I can see him for myself. And we said to my Lord, the boy can't leave his father. If he leaves him, his father will die. But you told your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you will not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him what my Lord had said. And our father said, go back and buy a little more food. But we said, we can't go down. Only if our youngest brother is with us will we go. We can't see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One of them went away from me. And I said, he has surely been torn to pieces. And I've not seen him since. If you take this one from me too and harm comes to him, you'll bring my gray head down to the grave in misery. So now, if the boy is not with us when I go back to your servant, my father, and if my father, whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life, sees the boy isn't there, he'll die. Your servants will bring the gray head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. Your servant guaranteed the boy's safety to my father. I said, if I don't bring him back to you, I'll bear the blame before you, my father, all my life. Now then, please, please, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy and let the boy return with his brothers. 
How can I go back to my father if the boy isn't with me? No. No, don't let me see the misery that would come upon my father. Then Joseph could no longer control himself. Before all his attendants, he said, May everyone leave my presence. And so there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him. And Pharaoh's household heard all about it. Thus speaks a changed man. Do you know something? The grace of God is so powerful, it can change anyone, even you. This is a loser. This is a twister. This is a bad man who's messed up. And now he's been changed. We know that because now he's no longer I, me, myself, number one. Grace turns us from being self-centered to God in Christ-centered. That makes us other-centered. He's changed. (laughs) And now that he knows he's changed, everything's different. And that leads us to our final thing. This is not water skiing this time. This is what? Surfing. And again, if you think I know nothing about water skiing, I know even less about this. Even though my son and my uh, near 14-year-old grandson are really good at this sort of stuff. What I do know, however, is you've got to keep your balance on that, haven't you? Otherwise, you're drinking an awful lot of seawater. And that leads us to our final consideration. Keeping your balance, staying God-centered, come what may. For faithful is the Lord. In just a blinding few hours, the whole of Joseph's life's been turned around. Did you notice that poignant phrase that when Pharaoh puts a, a ring on Joseph's finger, he also dresses him in fine linen. <laughs> he was 17, poncing round with a big Belisha beacon of a multicolored Amazing technicolor dream coat on him. Nobody. Don't know what it was made of, but it was probably, who knows, it might have even some of it been camel hair. It might have been scratching all over the place. But now, he's arrayed in fine garments. He's changed his uh, souped-up little courser for his Bugatti Veyron. And now at 39 years of age, meeting his brothers, he says this. Notice, Joseph said to his brothers, verse 4, come close to me. I'm your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now you don't, don't be distressed and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that, grab this, God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there's been famine in the land. For the next five years, there'll not be plowing or reaping. But grab it again. God sent me ahead of you to preserve a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, verse 8, here it comes again. It was not you who sent me here, but 
God. Hey, now, come on, Joseph, you got the wrong end of the stick here, son. It was your stupid brothers who sent you here. No, he says, no, 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 no. They were the human instrument, but God sent me here. Oh, well, in that case, Joseph, your brothers are not guilty. They were just working out God's purposes. Oh, no, 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 no. This is how it works in the Bible, by the way. It's called divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Who put Jesus on the cross? Well, it's simple. The Jewish authorities put him on the cross. Yeah. The Romans put him on the cross. Yeah. Theologically, we put him on the cross. Our sins put him there. Yeah, that's right. No, hang on, hang on. The Bible says God put him on the cross. He was delivered up, says Acts chapter 22, verse 23, by the predetermined counsel and foreknowledge of God. What? So that means that we're not guilty and we can walk free. No, 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 no. Because it also says, you by the help of wicked man have crucified and slain him. Wow. God uses even evil in his sovereign purposes of grace. It doesn't exonerate the evil. It doesn't let people off. They will be judged. But God in his sovereignty works all things together for the good of those who love him. Or in the words of Joseph in chapter 50, verse 20, the Old Testament equivalent of Romans 8, 28, he says this. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done. Do you see that? You intended it this way, God intended it that. I don't know your heart. I don't know your circumstances. In most cases, I don't know your name and your pain. But I know a man who does. As a wise person said, God will never be disillusioned with you because he never had any illusions to start with. God knows you inside out and upside down and back to front. He's got your name. He's got your number. I know where you live, says the book of Revelation. <laughs> Chapter 2. He knows you. And when you confess your sins to him, you're not bringing them up to speed and God's saying, gosh, I never knew that. <laughs> you're not doing God any favors when you confess. You're doing yourself a favor. Coming clean with the Lord. Then making yourself available for him to come and fill your heart with his forgiveness, with his grace, with his love by his spirit. Because you see, God has a big master plan to woo and win the world to the obedience of faith in Christ. And you've got a part to play in that. And he doesn't want you wounded and out of the, out of the battle. But he wants you on the field, tooled up and raring to go for Jesus. And he does it by his grace. There's one final paradigm parallel that it would be so wrong to leave. We can trace Joseph's life like this. He goes from the pit, the cistern, to the prison, if you want three Ps, and he ends up in where? The palace. Yep. Could you agree with that? 
That's it. That's a movement of life. Pit, prison, palace. And his movement from pit to prison is a descent. He's stripped bare. Even though he was the favored son. The palace is exalted to the right hand of Pharaoh. And he who was presumed to be dead is wondrously alive and the savior and provider for his people. Does that remind you of anybody? It's meant to. He who, though being in very nature God, thought not his privileges of being God and his rights were things to be held onto for his, his own aggrandizement. Big flowing translation from the Greek. But he laid aside his glory and his dignity. He never laid aside being God. And he humbled himself. And he became a servant. And he became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. From the highest of heights to the depths and then to the throne. That's Joseph. That's Jesus. And the Bible says... If we suffer with him, one day we shall also reign with him. One of my favorite American singers is a lady called Sarah Groves. Some beautiful, haunting melodies. And a couple of lines from one of her songs says, I can't remember a trial or a pain. He didn't recycle to bring me gain. That's the truth. And you one day will know that God has recycled your pain and your grief and your sorrows and your tears. And through them he brought you gain in this world and in the next. In 1970, recording history was made when Bridge Over Troubled Water Simon and Garfunkel made it to the number one spot in the LP chart and in the singles. And one of the lines in that says, sail on silver girl, sail on by. Your time to shine has come. All your dreams are on the way. You could parody that. Sail on, struggling saint. Sail on by. Your time to shine will come because of Jesus. All your dreams are on their way. As ever it says, if you need a friend, I'm sailing right behind. Like a bridge over troubled water, I will ease your mind. Pop fiction. Gospel fact. If you need a friend, he's not sailing right behind. He's up there close, 
personal with you every wave of the way. Ask Joseph if it's true. Ask Joseph if, if God's purposes were right. Go home, said David Steele, and prepare for government. Go home and prepare for government. And prepare others as well. For we shall reign with him. And in one blinding nanosecond in his presence, every tear will be wiped away. And we shall be like him. <laughs> For we shall see him as he is. Oh, Lord, bring it on. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Let's just be quiet for a moment in God's presence. We traversed a big chunk of Scripture, just helicoptered our way through its uh, Everest heights, just looking down and seeing a little contour here or there. But as uh, your pastor reminded you yesterday, what is it the Lord has said to you? What is it you need to do in response? Is your need for forgiveness or to offer it? For continued prayer for the prodigal, whoever they may be, or a change of heart to be ready to not be the elder brother, but the waiting father. Is your need for perseverance because there doesn't seem any end to the trials and you're wondering whether God's really forgotten you? How could he do that? He says, I have graven you, not just your troubles, not just your name, I've graven you and all that you are on the palms of my hands. You're full of worry and doubts and despair about the future. Lift up your heads. Your redemption and your redeemer draws near. All your best days are ahead, whatever age you are. We're headed for the palace of the king. We're headed for home. We're headed for the party that will never end. We're headed for the banquet. We're headed for the kingdom of God. We're preparing for government. brief prayer from an old hymn. Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Thou art the potter. I am the clay. 
mold me and make me after thy will. While I am waiting, yielded and still. Have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. Hold o'er my being absolute sway. Mold me and fill me till all shall see. Christ only, always. Living in me. Oh, breath of life. Come sweeping through us. Revive thy church with light and power. In Jesus' name.